Welcome to Garfield Memorial Church. We are one church in three locations, Pepper Pike, Ohio, South Euclid, Ohio, and Liberia, Africa. Together, we seek to widen the circle through our core values of diversity, safety, authenticity, growth, and forgiveness. To learn more about Garfield Memorial Church, visit our website at garfieldchurch.org. And now, may you be blessed and inspired by our weekly podcast of the message from the 10 a.m. Sunday morning Mosaic worship service. Garfield Memorial Church, widening the circle. I haven't had a chance to meet you. I'm Chip Freed, the lead teaching pastor here of our one church in three locations. And want to greet all of you who are worshiping with us today online. Um, we began this month asking, what if? Um, that video was so appropriate because we're, we're in a year, a season of vision here at Garfield Memorial Church. Now you say, okay, Chip, I get what you're doing here, 2020 vision. Well, yeah, um, but it truly was God lets us know that there are times on our journey, individually, collectively, that we may need to stop and ask to get our vision checked. I said at the beginning of this series, I wear extended wear contacts, and every year I got to go in and renew my prescription. And I think that's a good parable for life, for us to, uh, at time to time, stop and, and look at where we are and look at where God is calling us to be. And so uh, we're in a time of vision, asking what if. It's going to be a very important year for our church, and as we look at the micro future for three years and even the macro future for 10 years. And I believe, I don't know what it is, Pastor Steve, I want to tell you. God has been really putting on my heart that this next decade is going to be one of the most important decades in the history of the American church. Maybe the most important decade since civil rights, and before that, the Civil War, and before that, the Great Awakening. It's it's going to be a real time of of winnowing and, and building and sowing and tearing down. I just feel that. So we want to be sensitive to what God is saying to the church. So as I was thinking about that, there was a story I almost preached on today. I'm not going to. Uh, well, a little bit, but um, uh, one of the stories of somebody regaining their, their vision, their sight, we know one of the things Jesus said that he came uh, to bring sight to the blind, to preach good news to the poor, to release the captives, he announced his mission. And this uh, healing story in Mark's gospel, actually, I'm going I'm to spend my time today in Matthew, but in Mark's gospel in the eighth uh, chapter, there's a pretty interesting story. Jesus is in Bethesda, Bethesda up in the Sea of Galilee. He's about ready to take his disciples to the headwaters of the Jordan at Caesarea Philippi, where he will ask Peter, who do you say I am? And uh, he heals a man who is blind. It's an interesting story we've got up here in Mark 8, 23. It says that Jesus said to this man, well, I'm sorry, he, he goes, let me pre- preface this. He gra- takes a man who's blind. It says he takes him in Bethesda outside of the town. He takes saliva and puts it on the man's eyes. He lays his hands on him to heal him. And then he says this. Jesus asked him, can you see anything? And the man looked up and said, I can see people, but they look like trees walking. Isn't that interesting? Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he looked intently, and his sight was restored, and he saw clearly. Now, this, this, this strikes me for two reasons. One, where it's placed in the narrative. The gospel writers uh, tend to assemble the stories in a way that they are preaching to us. And if you ever notice the healing of the blind, whether it's Bartimaeus, whether it's this person, whether it's a man in John at the Pool of Siloam, 
those healings of the blind take place right before very, very pivotal moments where Jesus is trying to get all of us to see something. In fact, this one that takes place in Bethesda, Jesus is going to go down to the headwaters of Jordan. I started this series off by saying, are we going to be fans or followers of Christ? And he goes down and asks his disciples that basic same thing. He said, what are the fans saying about me? Well, some say you're a prophet. Some say you're John the Baptist. Come back. But who do you say, right? And Peter gives what we call the great confession. You are the Christ. Seeing something, right? So these these healing of, of the physical blind are preludes to something that all of us need. To have our eyes open and regain our sight. So that's the first thing in this story. The second thing is, you know, Jesus, this is kind of like, is something going on here? Did he do something wrong? I mean, you know, Jesus sometimes, he just speaks a word and people are healed, right? Doesn't even touch them, doesn't go near. But in this place, he's very elaborate. He changes the man's geography. He says, let's get away. Let's go outside the town, right? Let's go down, down 480, a couple exits here. And then he takes saliva and he puts it on the man's eyes. I mean, he doesn't do that very much. One time he uses mud, but that's not a modus operandi. Then he lays hands on him. This is an elaborate moment. And it doesn't seem to work. He says, what do you see? He's convinced. He says, ah, it looks like trees walking. I don't know. I mean, you know, I, in, a, in a galaxy far, far away and a long time ago, I played Division I basketball, so I tend to see things in the way of sports. And I thought, did Jesus, like, did he oversleep? Did he not do his stretching that morning? Like, you know, was this one of the most embarrassing things that happens to high-level uh, NBA players? They go in for the dunk and it bangs off the rim. And you got to go get your rebound and lay it back up. I mean, what's going on? Why do you have to touch him a second time? And I think it's a good message for all of us because I've said many times that gaining spiritual vision and spiritual growth happens gradually. We always say, well, yeah, I was saved at this day and age, and this is where I was baptized, and I was confirmed. And, and then, like, we finished like, he is trying to grow us up, and this takes time, and it's every step of the way. That's why I get frustrated when people look at churches, and, and they, they're, they're paranoid the church were closed, and they say things like this, I was baptized in that church, I was married in that church, and I'm waiting for people to say, that's the place, is the base of my operations where I grow with Jesus Christ daily. Not something that happened back then. Something that's happening to me now. And how many of you know... That Jesus, I'm going to tell my story. If you have the courage, raise your hand. Has had to touch me and you a second time and a third time and a fifth time and a fiftieth time. Until we start seeing things the way we're supposed to see them. I think how much I've grown in my own walk with Christ. Even these last 15 years being here with you. I hope and pray I'm more like Jesus today than I was a year ago. And I hope I'm a year away from being more like him next year. And we need that. And, and it reminds me, the story I want to read to you, I want to read you a parable as we kind of close out this month on Vision 2020, but we're going to live it all year, but the preaching series here, that, that Jesus teaches in parables. And parables were a form of speech and oratory in that day and age. Uh, they were kind of the combination between a riddle, a logic problem, and let me tell you a story. And what parables were used for was instead of being up here pontificating and proclaiming a particular prophetic word, parables would tell the story and put the work of figuring it out in your hands. 
right? We had, like Aesop's fables, we had to figure out what is the point of the story and, and do some work, and parables were given to make people think, and I don't know why thinking has become a lost art in Christianity. And I asked Jesus one time, why do you teach in parables? Why do you teach them in parables? Look at his answer. He said to them, I teach them in parables, right? The reason I speak to them in parables is that seeing they do not perceive and hearing they do not listen, nor do they understand. I speak to them in parables to get them thinking, to get them deepening, right? And, and we are, I'm going to read for you a parable that David Buttrick calls the trickiest parable in the entire New Testament. It's found in Matthew. It's known as the parable of the talents. But before I read it to you, I want to set up the context. These, this parable comes in the midst of four parables that Jesus gives immediately before he goes into Jerusalem to the last night of his life, to the Last Supper, and then to the cross. Each gospel writer highlights something right before Jesus goes into Jerusalem. Luke says it's at the end of a long journey, all the way from Luke 9:51 to 1928. Everything that happens is on the way to Jerusalem. Luke is gathering this journey until he arrives. John gives us from John 14 to 17 a long discourse of Jesus' pleading and teaching for his disciples. And then in John 17, the longest prayer that Jesus ever prayed for them and for us. But in Matthew, he says, these are the last four parables that he wants to highlight that Jesus gave. And where did he give them? He gave them not in a vacuum. He gave them in a response to a question. He was in Matthew 24. He's up on the Mount of Olives, which is always the image and the place that tradition holds that the Messiah would come the first time and then come again. And he's teaching to them about what to do after he leaves. And he's showing them that, they, that he will come back, that there will be a second coming, that there will be a summation of history. And the disciples ask this question. They say, tell us, when will this be? And what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? And I love what Jesus says. He says, well, first off, when? He says, you know, about the time of the hour, no one knows, not even the son, but only the father. And this is a little aside, and it's a little cheap, but that's why I always get kind of humored by people on TV or on the internet or that seem to have this thing all figured out, and they're working the signs, you know, and I'm like, you know, if Jesus said he didn't know, how do you know? But anyhow, we'll move on from that. I like what Tony Campolo, one of my mentors, said. He said, about the second coming of Christ, he said, I'm not called to be on the program committee, but I am called to be on the welcoming committee, Right. And so Jesus says, in the what I'm going to tell you, we don't know the time, but in the meantime, and scholars say that he gives three parables about how to wait, and then a fourth parable about what the end will look like. The last parable, you remember, he separates the sheep and the goats, and, and he says to some, I was hungry and you fed me, I was thirsty, you gave me water, I was a stranger. That word in the Greek is also, I was an alien, I was an immigrant. Don't get mad at me, I didn't write it. I was a guest in your church and you welcomed me. I was in prison, you visited me, right? We know that. That's, that's the end time story. But three parables in the meantime that lead up to how do we wait for that? And the first parable he tells is that a, a master went away for a long journey and there were two servants left in charge of the household. One took care of people and one abused people. And abused it in Jesus' name, the master's name. And when he came back, he dealt with that slave very harshly. The next parable is the maidens. Some were wise, some were foolish. Some tried to be fans and just run the race with the little oil that was in their lamp. 
Others were followers and dug deep and brought casks of oil. And the fans were left out and the followers come in. And then the very last parable about how we wait, here's the parable of the talents. It says this, For it is if, is, as if a man is going on a journey, right? Jesus going away, summoned his servants and entrusted his property to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two talents, to another one he gave one talent, each according to their ability. Then he went away. The one who had received the five talents went off at once and traded with them and made five more talents. In the same way, the one who had the two talents made two more talents. But the one who had received the one talent went off and dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. After a long time, right? This is the waiting. The master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. Then the one who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five more talents, saying, Master, you handed over to me five talents. See, I've made five more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. The word there is pistos, where we get piston, your faith. You've been faithful in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. And the one with the two talents also came forward saying, Master, you handed over to me two talents. See, I've made two more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful in a few things. We're going to talk about that. I'll put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Then one who had received the one talent also came forward saying, Master, I knew that you were a harsh man. That word harsh in the Greek means ruthless. Reaping where you did not sow, gathering where you did not scatter seed. So I was afraid. And I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master replied, you wicked and lazy servant, you knew, did you, that I reap where I do not sow and gather where I did not scatter? Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And on my return, I would have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to the one with ten talents. For all those who have, more will be given and they will have an abundance. But from those who have nothing, even what they have will be taken away. As I said, one scholar calls this the trickiest parable in the entire New Testament, right? Because on the surface, this parable seems really easy, right? Like it's not hard to figure out who the hero's in the story and who the villain is. It's like in the old Western movies, you remember? All the heroes wore the white hats and all the villains wore the black hats, which was inherently racist, by the way. But they were easily identified. And it seems like we can easily identify who the heroes and villains are in the story. And I love that there was a Broadway play, it was back in the 60s, that made a spoof of the Westerns. Like the good guys came out in the white hats, the bad guys came out in the black hats. But during the course of the play, they kept changing hats and nobody knew who anyone was. So at the end of the play, they just threw off their hats. I thought it was amazing. And actually, that's something that's going to happen in this parable. We don't really know who the good guys and bad guys are. We think they do because it seems so easy. The heroes are the guy that took what was given to them. They invested it. They went out. They did wonderful things with it. The CEO came back. He gave them a banquet. He gave them gold watches and a new vice president title. Right? But the poor, do-nothing, afraid-to-leave-my-spot servant is judged very harshly, right? So it's easy. 
those who follow Jesus, we're to take risks, we're to go out there, we're to invest in the kingdom. And when we're, you know, kind of the people that just want to, you know, too afraid to leave the shore and we hang to the shoreline and, you know, we don't go out and invest, we will be judged. And there's a little truth to that, right? We close 4,000 churches a year in America and that number is escalating. And most of them are churches that in fear, like this guy was, are, are circling the wagons. They're, they're, they're fearful. They're, they're just trying to hang on. They're, they, they're not going out and doing anything. They're just trying to see if they can hang in there till the last one will turn out the lights. And that, and that happens. And to those who have little, even the little you have is going to go away. But the risk takers, right? We plant in America 3,500 new churches every year, most of them non-denominational, and younger people who are going out there and taking risks and trying to reach the unreachable. So, yeah, there's some truth in the parable. But there's problems. There's glaring problems in this parable. And it is my job to irritate you, so I'm going to do it. It is. My wife says I have the spiritual gift of irritation, so I'm going to bring it to full force upon you right now. Three problems, glaring problems in this parable. First, number one, Matthew says that these servants, the master comes back and says, you've been faithful in a little. Our translation says a few things. Luke says in 19, his telling of this parable, you've been faithful over a very small thing. But the problem is these are talents. Do you know that talents were the most valuable piece of coinage in the entire ancient New World? Right? Talent was silver coinage, watch this, that weighed between 57 and 74 pounds. Their value was 6,000 denarii. And one denarii was equal to a common laborer's wage for a year. So one talent means 16 years of wages. In fact, U.S. scholars and numerologists, when they've looked at this, they have calculated that in U.S. dollars, one talent then, today, would equal about $300,000. So this isn't a guy who's having a lemonade stand or doing a bake sale to raise money for church missions. This is a man who's given five talents. He's out there investing $1.5 million dollars and the gospel says, yeah, you, got, you did a little thing. Well, no problem, right? The second problem in this is, is everybody believes that the master in this story is who? Jesus. You guys are so good. It's always Jesus. I love in the children's ministry, there was somebody teaching and said, hey, class, what is brown and has furry and has four legs and a furry tail and eats nuts? Kid said, Jesus. She said, well, he said, what do you mean? She said, she said, well, it sounds like a squirrel, but around here, the answer is always Jesus. So anyhow, I get it. it is Jesus. But most people believe that. And, and true, when they call him master, it's the word Kyrie, which Kyrie in the Greek meant Lord. It was a basis for Christ. I think somebody needs to, I love Kyrie Irving. He won us a championship, but somebody ought to whisper to him, like, slow your roll, bro. You're taking that a little too high. But anyhow, it, it really is that we think this is God. This is Jesus, right? But when this one talent servant comes to him, he says, I knew you were ruthless. I knew you were a harsh man, reaping where you did not sow, taking what you did not scatter. And he agrees with him. In fact, Luke makes it more stark in 19. It says, oh, you knew, did you, that I was a ruthless man? That's what the word means. This is weird. Like God's coming and saying, ruthless? Yeah, I'm ruthless. But God's not ruthless. 
What's going on here? When a ruthless world nailed Jesus Christ to the cross, what did he say? Father, forgive them. So they don't know what they're doing. That's not a ruthless comment, by the way, so that's a problem. And then the third problem is that the treatment that this this one-talent servant receives. It's extremely harsh. In fact, if I'd have kept reading, it says he's thrown out into weeping and the gnashing of teeth. Like, in fact, the punishment doesn't fit the crime. I'm going to go further. There was no crime. Jewish and Roman law said that the only way that you could be held in a pre-banking society, blameless for a resource given to you, was to bury it in the ground. That's why, that was the law. That was the Ten Commandment law, the Mosaic law. In fact, that's why people are always finding buried treasure. When Jesus said the kingdom of God is like somebody who found buried treasure, they had that because people would bury, that was their banking, and when the armies would come in, they're wiped out, people would later find those things buried in the ground. So here is someone who's done everything that is right, followed the commandments. In fact, one legal scholar said, by burying this in the ground, this person, listen, his his words, an old legalist, assured a verdict of responsibility, and when he gave it back to the master, the master would have no claim, legal claim, against him. But yet he is called a wicked servant and thrown out into utter darkness. And the audience there would have been going, what is going on? But here's the good news. If you didn't know this, in the parables, whatever was shocking was their point. So parables would always shock. They don't shock us because we don't live in that language. Like when we hear there was a sower who went out and sowed seed, and some fell on paths, and some on rocky soil, and some in thorns, and some on good soil. We go, oh, we want to be the good soil. And we miss the radicality of that. Because in an agrarian society, seeds were $1,000 bills. So it would be like me saying to you, there was a person who went down on 9th Street uh, downtown and he took $1,000 bills and he threw them in the wind and some went into storm sewers and some were picked up by the crowds going to Progressive Field and with great joy and others blew into the hands of some homeless where they could get shelter for the year and for food for the, for the month. That's what it would sound like. And what would we have said? What's shocking? Who's going to go around throwing $1,000 bills? And Jesus says, my followers are promiscuous with their money and with their talents and they throw them out and they don't judge who they're falling on. They let God do the judging, right? That, that, and so when we have these three problems, these are the things that Jesus wants us to pay attention to. So I'm going to try to answer the three. It says I got eight minutes and 30 seconds. I got news for you. I'm going to need at least 15 back there, guys, so you can reset the clock. Um, (laughs) Sorry, I'm just being me. So The first problem is this. Where is 1.5 mil a very little thing? Certainly not in American society. It's not in your life. I don't care how many millions you have in investment. You still care about this, okay? Billionaires care about this. But why is the gospel a very little thing? Where is 1.5 mil a very little thing? In the economics of the kingdom of God. In what Dr. King, we talked last week, called the beloved community, Right? See, when Jesus comes into the center of your life, and he is our Kyrie, he is our Lord, you know what happens to money? It just becomes money. It isn't our ultimate idol. It isn't what gives us identity. I love, there's an old movie back in the 60s with Richard Burton. Um, It was even a play with Laurence Olivier, so it must be important. But it's actually a true story. It's about Samuel Beckett. When King Henry VIII, you know, when he was wanting to chop off all his wives' heads and the Pope wouldn't go along with him, this is historically true, he took one of his drinking buddies, 
a guy named Samuel Beckett, and he made him the Archbishop of Canterbury so that his drinking buddy would let him do this and break from the church. But what happened was his drinking buddy went in, became the Archbishop, and he quit acting like his drinking buddy. And Henry VIII said to him, true story, he said in history, he said, you're not acting like yourself. And he said, maybe I no longer am myself. He said, when you put this horrible honor on me, I was a man without honor. But in that cathedral, I found honor. And it was the honor of God. And then there's a great scene in the, in the, in the movie, if you ever, it's old, I YouTubed it, you can find it, that he's giving away all of his worldly goods before he's ordained. And people are saying to him, what are you doing? He said, well, Jesus said, give all you have to the poor and follow me, and I'm just doing it. And they're like, that is really weird. You're even giving away your winter stuff and that. And, it, and people are, you know, other preachers are saying, what is wrong with you? And he turns and looks at the cross of Christ, and he smiles, and he says, only you know how easy this is. See, that's where 1.5 mil is a little thing. In the mission to the kingdom. And secondly, where is God ruthless? Right? Where do we find? I don't, I just said God isn't ruthless. Well, there's a couple of times he is. When Jesus goes into the temple <laughs> and there's money changers, if you know the story, they're exploiting poor people. It's, it, you know, it's not about the middle class. It's not about the wealthy. They are literally exchanging money and taxing the poor. And Jesus says what? Flips over the table, takes a whip of you know, cords, and goes after them. In fact, Josephus, who's a Jewish a historian, not a Christian, not a believer, but he records all about Jesus because it was really true. He wishes it wasn't. But he wrote in his writings, his story, he said Jesus often went into the temple like a wild man. So he gets ruthless what? He gets ruthless addressing injustice. He gets ruthless when he sees exploitation and marginalization. He goes after that. And he also, we see, gets ruthless at Lazarus' tomb. If you read the story, when he goes to Lazarus, he weeps. I've always been struck by that. He's weeping, knowing what he's going to do, but he cares about us and our feelings and our hurt. And it says he went to Lazarus' tomb. Here's what the English says, angry. (laughs) You know what the Greek says? He went snorting in rage like an animal. He's ruthless to address our suffering and our death, which was not God's design. And the other place we see him ruthless is when he's going to restore and to reach people who are lost. Do you know that he broke every religious rule, every law of Moses, everything that was written so that he could sit and eat with Zacchaeus, so that he could talk to a Samaritan woman, so he could heal a leper by the touching of the leper and heal the man with the withered hand on the Sabbath. There's times he is ruthless and he's ruthless about his mission to reach hurting people And so why this harsh punishment? Because Jesus is going to say to his followers, as he has sent me, so I send you. You're to be out there doing my mission in the world, right? And what this servant is coming back, this is not about money at this point. He's coming back and saying, I basically took the call and the mission that you've given to me, and I buried it in the ground. And so while we wait, right? Parable's about waiting. While we wait for his return, we work. That's what the mission of the story is. I remember old Puritan was leading a town hall uh, back in early America, and there was a solar eclipse, and everybody got scared. They'd never seen one, never heard of one. And they said, maybe this is the end time. We should adjourn. And the leader said, well, you know what? If this is Jesus coming back, I'd like to have him find me doing his work. Right? We're waiting. America's waiting for next Sunday. Do you know that? Most of America. It's a lot of buzz. 
It's going to go on all week. You're going to see people dressing funny. You're going to have a week of tailgating, not a, a morning. You're going to have plans being made, cakes being you know, constructed, uh, subs and food and everything else uh, in preparation for this big Sunday. What is it? Okay, a third of you knew that. That's good. Um, Super Bowl Sunday, right? It's a big game of the year. And I got to think, oh, don't start the teams here. I'm going to convict you in a minute, my sister. Um, here's the deal. I got to thinking about that. I said, Chip, you know, we're talking about waiting. The America's waiting. What's the parable about while we wait, we work? And I, I had an epiphany. Do you know that football, whether it's the NFL, whether you watch college or anything, do you know that football is about two teams who have entered into non-negotiable conflict? And their job is to interfere with each other's progress. That's what football is. Non-negotiable conflict impede each other's process. But do you know that there's a third team that's on the field? Right? They're the officials. They're to be on the field without becoming part of the field. They're to be in the midst of the conflict without becoming part of the conflict. They are deputized by 365 Park Avenue in New York City the office of the league and the office of Roger Godell. They are to represent the kingdom up there in the chaos down here. They are to make the conflict manageable just by their presence. And they've been given a book. They've been given an instruction manual. They go weekly for reviews and for training. Um, and uh, their personal opinions now have to be adjusted by that book. Do you, do you understand where I'm going? They, 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 they are, they're not in a popularity contest. In fact, sometimes they will get knocked down and bruised. Um, they don't don the jerseys of the competing teams. They are very distinct. And watch this. They are grossly outnumbered. Okay? There are 53 players on both teams, dozens and dozens of coaches, and tens and tens of thousands of hostile fans in the stands, yet they are carrying kingdom authority. They have been trained and gifted by the guidelines of another kingdom. And this is what Jesus Christ is saying to us. I have called you to be my team. In fact, if we look at Matthew 28 at the end of his gospel, he says, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. I'm now giving it to you. So go out into the midst of that conflict and make disciples of all people and baptizing them into new life and teaching them everything that I have taught you. And I know you're afraid. That's why that one talent servant said, I was afraid. I know you're afraid. That's why Psalm 23 said, even if I walk through the darkest valley, I won't be afraid because you're with me. Two people knew that. And remember, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Right? And basically, he is saying to us, I have called you to be my reconciling, redeeming, rescue, and restoration team in the midst of the conflict. I have sent you out while you're waiting to walk into the chaos, not to hide in the backyard, and to speak the words that I did, let there be light. See, we have been given assets, friends, time and talent and treasure, kingdom assets, 
Ephesians 4, he says, some he made apostles, some he made evangelists, some he called to priest, some he called to... All of us have been giving a kingdom assets. We have homes, we have jobs, we have all these things. Every good gift comes from above. We have been given kingdom assets. And the problem of this unfaithful servant was not that he broke the law. The problem was he sat on his asset. So if you don't remember anything else from this message, here's what I want you to remember. Don't sit on your asset. He has gifted us to get up and to go out into the kingdom. He is building something bigger than the kingdoms of this world. And he demands that you and I take what he has gifted with us and pick up a shovel and get to work. And as I say so many times, friends, there are certain hands you can hold, only you can hold, certain hurts only you can heal, certain lives only you can touch. So we're going to close. I'm going to bring the band up here. But I'm going to ask you as we close, what you heard us walking around with these buttons. Will you be one of the 200? What will you do with your asset this year? Will you sit on it? <laughs> I knew you'd get that, Tina. Or... Would you take your time, your talent, your treasure, and say, what can I do to be on that field, to be in the midst of the conflict and not part of the conflict, but bring in God's redeeming love? Friends, Pastor Terry and Pastor David from our family and children's ministry, they're going to come up on stage. We've asked you to consider, what can you do this year? Give up time. Give a little gift. Take a test drive. Right? Try something out to help move the mission of the church, whether on Sundays or during the week, whether in the building or out of the building. Something you might try. If you hate it, you give it up. But what would happen if all God's people, I want to say get up off of there. I won't do that. But don't sit on it. <laughs> and take your asset and invest it into the kingdom of God. Amen? All right, let's pray together.